listen in because this is a fabulous discussion about inclusion. We go deep with our hope that you will feel validated that inclusion is not just about the law, but is more of a social justice issue. So listen in. I think you'll really find it helpful. Synergy Autism Podcast. I am joined today by my wonderful friend and colleague, Dr. Christy Preddy Franzek. She is one of the most forward thinking and grounded individuals in the field of special education that I know. She shares her wisdom with teens around the world of how to support one another so that we can support and guide children with special needs with more intention and with better outcomes than we are experiencing today. She is a champion of inclusion and has amazing resources on her website regarding this topic and many, many others. You can find that at christiepf.com and Christy is K-R-I-S-T-I-E pf.com. So welcome, Christy. I'm so glad you're here. Oh my gosh, Barb. Thank you. Thank you. And this is why I don't let other people introduce me. Um, but thank you. That was very generous and kind. And um, I just appreciate you. So thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I should also note that we, Christy and I have known each other for quite a while now. We won't say how many years, but we met. No, we should note I'm wearing my Oregon ball cap. So <gasps> go Ducks. We're all go good. Go Ducks. <laughs> So thank you for joining me for this discussion. I really appreciate it about inclusion for young children with special needs and especially, of course, autism, because that's my specialty. And I want to start by sharing a little bit about where I come from on this topic and share my frustrations, because I think this will help orient us, the two of us, but then also our listeners as to why I have... um, you here as someone who supports educators to reimagine inclusion. So um, bottom line, throughout my career, I've come to inclusion from, you know, come to the inclusion debate um, from multiple angles. I've been a preschool teacher who felt that a child in my classroom was too far behind to integrate successfully into kindergarten. I've been that teacher. I've been the receiving teacher and the autism specialist for many children who were in who were placed into my classroom um, using top-notch evidence-based practices. I've been the counselor and coach for autistic adults who tell me about the trauma that they experienced by being segregated, not included, and not integrated. I've also questioned the legal description of the least restricted environment, or what they call in legal ease LRE, and still think it depends on what restricts the student from learning. And last, I've been the one to advocate for a child, actually multiple children, who were so stressed and overwhelmed in a classroom environment, being removed and taught one-on-one at home until their biological systems were stable and able to handle a bit of change and uncertainty. So now currently, kind of fast forward, I have several families who have or are currently fighting with their school systems, not just here in Oregon, I should mention, and not in America alone, but across the globe. We're talking, you know, I serve families across the globe and they're all talking about this, who want their children to be integrated into their neighborhood school, to know their peers, for their peers to know them. They see huge, these forward-thinking parents see huge benefits for their greater society, for example, for integration to be the first consideration, not as a privilege that their child has to earn. 
And I say this last part because I'm baffled by the fact that non-identified children, we, we laugh about this, Christy, is that you, all you have to be is alive and five to go into kindergarten and an integrated regular education classroom, but it seems that our early childhood special education students seem to have to have this, you know, meet this arbitrary criteria. So, okay, so I've said enough. <laughs> so what I'd love to hear from you, Christy, is if you'd kind of lay it out, like what's the law say, and then what are you seeing and hearing, and what is your, what are you trying to revolutionize in the field of education, and I know especially around early childhood? Yeah. So I guess for me, as I was listening to your story, Barb, I was kind of, I'm always reflecting like, why do I get so fired up when it comes to inclusion? And probably for me, there's this definition um, from, uh, I think it's called Simple Interactions website, and they define inclusion as inviting and involving the mm -hmm. least likely or least able to engage. And then I think about that definition of inclusion and um, it sort of stirs this uh, social justice issue in me. So when my colleague, Julie Costin, who's like the biggest guru around inclusion, uh, mm -hmm. talks about the law and so forth, she often says that we approach inclusion or we get convinced or fired up or um, get people to do inclusion, whatever we're trying to do, based upon legal reasons, research, uh, sort of social stories or stories of human connection and social justice. So for me, I sort of gravitate towards the social justice explanation, but mm -hmm. I think a lot of people start with what your question was, which is what does the law say, at least in the United States. And what's really interesting in the U.S., there are sort of four laws that um, oversee or would guide us in what are a student's right around inclusion, especially for early childhood. So it's the Individuals with Disabilities Education Improvement Act, IDEA, um, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, mm -hmm. the Americans with Disabilities Act, and then also the Head Start Act. There's some language there. But what's really interesting is none of them require or um, in fact, IDEA, the biggest of or the closest law to what we're talking about, doesn't even use the word inclusion. So as you said, wow. it mentions free and appropriate public education. Mm -hmm. It mentions least restrictive environment. Mm -hmm. And it mentions individualized supports. But it doesn't speak to mainstreaming, inclusion, integration. Yeah, so it leaves it up for interpretation Absolutely. And even I just, in I just yeah, want to ahead. take a second, if it's okay, because there's a yeah, few, you've said back. so much already that I just want to highlight <laughs> for our listeners. One is Julie Costin. How can yes. we find out more about um, her? And is she the one who works with, um, oh, I'm blanking on her name, but the, the, I love her on Paula Kluth on inclusion. Yes, they co-teach about Awesome, co so I love Paula Kluth. So I just don't know Julie Costin as much. Yeah, yeah. No, Julie, Julie's a, um, a huge champion of inclusion. And you can find her at inclusiveschooling.com. Awesome. And she, um, she and I work closely together uh, trying to extend this conversation uh, around inclusion to be pre-K-12. Um, but yes, she does teach and co-teach often with Paula around co-teaching. Yes. I, they ha well, at least uh, Paula has the, um, you're going to love this kid. 
as a, a book or a teaching of how to integrate. But um, the other one that you mentioned it had the word simple in it. Oh, yeah, sorry. Like. Yeah, there's this graphic um, from Simple Interactions website. It's simpleinteractions.org. And they okay. have a couple of little images that are like, they move a little bit. And it's just talking about that inclusion. And they said it was um, inviting and involving the least likely or least able to engage. Oh, I love that. Say that one more time. Inviting and involving the least likely or least, least able. able to engage. Beautiful. Okay. The other thing that I wanted to highlight is I don't know if you've seen the documentary on the um, people behind the ADA and yes. the 504. It's Crip Camp. It's, yes. Uh, yeah. Amazing, amazing you, documentary. You'll need to put that in your show notes too, Barb. Uh, well, definitely. need that for sure. Janice Fialka, another name, sorry, but Janice Fialka, um, <laughs> she has a beautiful book, um, that talks about her journey with her son, Micah. And so um, she also uh, is a big advocate for um, disability rights in general. Um, and, but she's also speaks often from a parent's perspective. So we'll oh, put awesome. her website as well so that people can, um, your followers and listeners can hear from a parent's perspective, which is always so powerful. Oh my gosh. Yes. And we probably have a lot of parents listening to this. So I appreciate yeah. that. So I um, will make sure that those are in the show notes. Perfect. Um, yeah. Okay. So thank you. Sorry to take us off a little no, bit. No, no. I, I get going on my teacher brain and I just start, you know, lecturing. <laughs> but yeah. So, so Julie's the one that taught me about the four reasons that people sort of come to inclusion or become convinced of inclusion. And that was the, the legal, the research, the stories, you know, Mm, like human. our own stories about our own story. I knew this kid. It was yeah. great. It was successful. Yeah. Um, and then um, social justice, which is the one that I resonate the most with. So why do you, you think? Right. Why do you think there's two camps? Like it really seems like people are either for inclusion or they don't believe in inclusion. I mean, I'm not sure anybody totally doesn't believe in inclusion. Then, yeah, really, it feels so? like sometimes they don't. Well, uh, it it feels like that because what I encounter is that parents aren't even offered that yeah. as their first option, they go straight to, oh, your child has autism, which I know there's some research that I was looking at recently that as soon as somebody receives that diagnosis of autism, they are more likely to be segregated. Yeah. And it, it isn't the, I mean, which, you know, there are reasons for that, but at the same time, I just am curious why there's either like people who are for inclusion and people who aren't. And it's right. like, this, it shouldn't be to me so black and white. It should be somewhere in between, right? Depending on the child's needs, which then bring me to the law. Yeah. Well, okay. You've said like really important many, many things. No, no, no. This is good. So like, again, <laughs> quoting Julie Costin, um, that it, she says that once you are segregated or put in a more restrictive environment, you have mm -hmm. a point zero zero. 2% chance of coming back. So it's 0.002% no chance of returning to the general ed environment. Wow. So that's kind of what we've been trying to, or thinking about as I've heard, once you're segregated, you remain segregated. Right. It's so, a one-way street. So, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing when you actually use the phrase black and white is really important because disability 
and um, segregation and exclusion is also grounded in other isms. So not only ableism, but mm -hmm. certainly racism. Absolutely. And for many of uh, the children that we serve, there is the intersect of classism, genderism, racism, ableism. And so what happens from my perspective, at least in the United States, but really globally, uh, policies and procedures, whether they're legal or practice-based, are generated by the white dominant culture. And the white dominant culture um, sees things binary. And so mm -hmm. we see things uh, literally black and white, good or bad, right or wrong, included yeah. or not included. It is in our culture. I am speaking from a white person's perspective. It's part of our culture and part of our dominance and our supremacy, which is problematic at all levels, um, that the rules then are um, binary. And so that we don't often see the middle way. We don't often see a both and, as Parker Palmer would say, uh, because the white dominant culture made the rules, enacts the rules, and um, even those of us that try very hard not to be racist or ableist. Mm -hmm. um, this idea of the white dominant culture making the rules and enacting the rules is that even by following the rules, we're not being anti-racist or we're not being anti-discriminatory. So we're like, but this is the rule. You have to meet you know, this level of threshold to get into be included. So we just perpetuate um, some policies that are broken at the core. So it's a little bit hard to give you a solid answer or a clear answer because even our laws are um, murky because, right, it doesn't mandate inclusion. Well, it probably, I mean, kind of what you're saying is that it's much more complex than, yeah. you know, and I, I really appreciate listen, thinking about that. And it actually has made me even more, um, uh, stronger in my advocacy for advocacy for inclusion because that same thing you were just saying is that it depends on your lens of yeah. of how you're interpreting the law even yes right so people and then people just think oh well that's just the way it is because it's the law but it's how you're interpreting the law based on how you grew up and how you, you know your own experiences and all of that and that's just that one laws. teacher let alone yep. the whole IEP team sitting in that room, right? And then the poor family who doesn't necessarily know the law because they, you know, are coming from lots of different backgrounds, not necessarily education. <laughs> and so they're coming to that meeting, trusting all these people, but then they're putting their uh, trust in all these um, decisions that are mired in racism, yes. ableism, all of these other things potentially. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about it and you look at even how you become eligible, it's all about your standard deviation from the mean, your deviation from normal, your deviation yeah. from what the white dominant culture has defined as normal or typical or acceptable. And wow. so Julie, yeah. again, talks about disability as a human difference. It's just diversity. It's just a disability is a form of diversity. But when yeah. we label it as abnormal or deviant or delayed or disabled, now we're already drawing a line in the sand, that binary, you're either typical or atypical. You're mm -hmm. either ready or not ready. You're, you see where it goes. 
Yes, exactly. Wow. Okay. So we have officially made it a very complicated, shared that it's a very complicated scenario. Now, yeah. how do we unpack that to use okay. what you commonly say a lot? How do we unpack that and make it so that <clears throat> it is something, so what happens for me is that I can certainly, I'm, I do a lot of parent education. So I do a lot of helping parents understand and really, um, usually when I just try and lay out the facts, of course, I'm though coming from my own story too. But um, when I lay out the facts, most parents will be uh, very inclusion focused, that they want their ch child included and they understand that they will need accommodations or that the gap may widen and then they may need to be excluded for certain things, etc. cetera. But um, how... What I keep getting tripped up on is that they're sitting across from a well-meaning teacher, who I know you support more teachers than I do, and they're, they are sitting there coming from their point of view that this child potentially won't, um, yeah, fit that norm you were just talking about, right? And so they just jump immediately to, oh, wouldn't you want more service and better and more um, evidence-based practices with, you know, this other classroom and it's less um, stimulating and a smaller class size. And they do, you know, all this discussion that brings them away. And then, of course, parents are going, oh, well, yeah, of course I want that for the, you know, because they're trying to figure it out themselves. So I guess while I'm supporting the parents, how do we support teachers, professionals in um, also kind of shifting their thinking? Mm -hmm. I don't well, know if that question was about clear. No, that's okay. Let's do two <laughs> things. Let's finish what the law does and doesn't say. And then let's, I'm going to, but okay. I'm going to first say what you're alluding to, which are the myths of a more mm. restrictive environment so that yep. we can understand why the team that's not including the parent at that moment would advocate for a, le a more restrictive environment. So why would we have yeah. this mindset? So certainly our experiences, our own fears, our own um, uh, racist ideas that we may be unaware of or non-aware of, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But yeah. we, Ijuma Jordan, another fabulous um, early childhood consultant, um, Ijuma Jordan will uh, in her work, she's my coach and helping me look at how my white dominant culture causes harm in the professional development that I may deliver. And one of her reminders is that I am responsible or accountable for my impact, not my intention. So you may have a well-intended teacher or well-intended professional team, but they're accountable really for in the end the impact of that in exclusion or that more restrictive environment. So the myth that many of us are operating under when we make a well-intended suggestion for a smaller or more self-contained or separate but not really equal um, is that we think it'll be safer, there'll be fewer distractions, and it will be more personalized or more individualized. And we actually um, have research and evidence that those are not only myths, but the opposite is true. So that not only is it a myth that it's safer, it's actually less safe. Not only is wow. it 
there are fewer, not fewer distractions. There are more distractions. And then also thinking it's not more personalized. It really isn't. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes, so, absolutely. Um, is there, would you be able to point us to that research? Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Just, I know I have some families who would be asking me right now for that. Yeah, the so, other thing uh, I just, real quick, I just want to say thank you for having a coach support you in understanding how your whiteness impacts the people you teach. Did I say that okay? Yeah, it, it's, um, it's an interesting thing because I appreciate your gratitude. And then one of the things that I have to resist about from being the white dominant culture mm. is that it's not about me. It's my yeah. responsibility for the harm that I do to people. Um, uh, yeah. Knowingly or not. So yeah. Um, but and there that, aren't I'm people out there who are even thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I just, just adds to the, you know, I yeah, described you in the very beginning as being uh, revolutionary and forward thinking and grounded all at the same time. And that's just a, such a good example of that. Yeah. We have a long ways to go. Anyway, um, we do. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, okay. So yeah, so I used, you know, the law used to be my favorite place to go. And of course I was faculty at the university for 16 years. So I loved research, but what I really found was that it was the social justice reason uh, for the reasons that you and I are talking about. So um, yeah. we talked about four laws that might give us evidence or support or a family could say, hey, the law says my child should be included. And so they could turn to IDEA 504 ADA head start. Again, none of those speak to it because IDA really focuses on free and appropriate LRE. 504 speaks about the regular education environment, but it's often really underutilized by districts. Mm -hmm. um, ADA is really a civil rights law, so it's not about inclusion yeah. uh, from a disability yeah. or ability. And then the Head Start Act um, is probably the closest, and I'll just read a quick statement that's from the Head Start Act. A program, meaning a Head Start program, must ensure enrolled children with disabilities. So they have to include children with disabilities in Head Start, including but not limited to those who are eligible under IDEA. Um, and then it talks about uh, getting services in the least restrictive possible environment and that they fully participate in all program activities. So it's the spirit mm -hmm. and the intent of inclusion, but again, does not use or require the term inclusion. And do you know oh. if there's anything like, um, I don't know, Boys and Girls Club or something like that that has some similar word wording? Mm, I don't, I bet. I bet there are some organizations yeah. or maybe like um, I don't really know, but like Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts or others may have oh, yeah. done that too. Yeah. But um, yeah. it's like any other thing. So one last part about uh, racism maybe for a minute is that even though women were granted the right to vote through the 19th Amendment in 1920, it took more uh -huh. than 45 years for women of color to have that same right. So same thing uh -huh. with children 
and students, mm. you may have a right to a public, free and appropriate public education, but to your point about children with autism, there are populations within the disability community that have even yeah. fewer rights than other students in the disability community. And so even though they yeah. are all served under IDEA, some children by age or by ability or by label actually have fewer rights um, actually implemented. Yeah. So like wow. we know that preschool children um, are like, uh, maybe it was many years ago, like 2013 maybe, and this recording's in 2020, less than half of the preschool age children with identified disabilities were served in an inclusive classroom. And that's globally, meaning wow. all the United States. Um, some states, some districts may be close to 0% of preschoolers in an inclusive environment. So wow. okay. the disparity is big. Okay, so that doesn't give you any solutions, but maybe that gives the big context. Well, yeah, no, it does, definitely. And I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I am wanting to respect your time too. So um, I'm kind of wanting to move us okay. into, okay, now what do we do? Because um, I know the two of us could go on for a really long time as to, you know, kind of unpacking what the issues are. Um, what I'm wondering, so there's a couple of things that I have in my okay. mind is one is that um, kind of trying to figure out what support school systems need to be able to embrace, embrace uh, inclusion. And, um, and then also something that we often talk about in other realms is just how so many of the accommodations and modifications that we ask for for children with autism or other special needs um, would be so beneficial to all children in a classroom. And so um, I wanted to kind of speak to that about, because I can speak to why they're super helpful for kids with autism, and you might be able to speak to, hey, wait a minute, but those would be super helpful for all these other kids too, right? So um, I don't know, which direction do you want to go well, first? Let's just like, start right there. I feel like um, if one idea that we always um, suggest is that if you think about children with diverse abilities first, it's much easier to think about everybody versus thinking about everybody and then retrofitting diversity. So if you can flip yeah. it and oh, start- so honoring, right. honoring that everyone learns differently. Correct, Correct. Yeah. put the labels aside and sort of go, okay, everybody. And I think that this pandemic, one of the um, things that I hope we are learning is that mm. people went, oh, not everybody was benefiting from school like we thought they were. And like, you have to teach yeah. differently to different kids. Like you would think we all thought that or believed it, but as we got kind of in the trenches, oftentimes or in our habits or in our um, following policies or school curricula, we sort of lost our way. So if we can flip that, that's the first thing a school district can really think about disability as a form of diversity but yeah. not diversity in a narrow lens of race, but meaning humans are different. So yeah. what yeah. could we do for a group we need of individualized instruction basically yeah. for everybody? For everybody. Start there. So that mm -hmm. each family isn't trying to retrofit their kid into a, a right. system that is already set up and prescribed for the year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So then that, 
kind of takes me into, wait, wait a second though, because I was thinking about how some things will help a larger group of kids. <laughs> so <laughs> like the fact that decluttering a classroom and having well-defined spaces is something that kids on the autism spectrum often really appreciate for their learning, but we know about child development in general, right? Yeah. So it's, it's doing that kind of scan and realizing that, you know, I feel like one of the big things that children with autism kind of brought into the quote unquote mainstream stream were visual schedules. We all realize that everybody, all of us have some form of visual schedule. Some of us still have old school calendars. Some of us have it on our phone. Some of us have a sticky note in our bag, but almost all of us need some sort of visual schedule. But even when we think about driving and we look at maps and signs and all of those sorts of things, those are visual supports. So we all went, oh, kids need some sort of predictability or some visual way to represent what's going to happen next. And now everybody uses, let's say, a visual schedule for the whole routine. But it's that kind of mindset that well, if we- I wish not, I could say everybody, but not everybody. Well, yeah, I not mean, everybody. Sure. Not, not all the school teachers. If we could look at, <laughs> let's, let's, let's go back, let's go to our heart of what we do. So you and I, um, part of what we've been talking about a lot lately are the four S's, mm. which comes from attachment science and the work of Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. But there's some frameworks, or maybe even just better yet, Barb and I often talk about this framework called Teach Before the Peak. And it's this idea of understanding when humans can learn and what allows humans to feel ready to learn. That's my biggest wish for school districts, is to really notice when what they've decided to adopt as a policy or a curriculum or a practice is it really working? And I don't mean, is it increasing test scores on a test that were developed to probably marginalize, if not harm, black, indigenous, and people of color and people with disabilities? That mm-hmm. aside, to notice what's really working for the brain to be able uh, to yeah. learning. And so then if it's decluttering or in a way to create a safe harbor or to reduce directions and corrections, or to use a visual schedule, then we don't see it as something I have to to do for each individual child as a modification or an adaptation, but I see it as my job of building all children's brains. Wow. So I like how you just combine those, that we need to kind of calm the waters of classrooms so that we can individualize, right? Because no child can learn if they're stressed, right? Right. Right. Again, I mean, I do feel like there's so much that children with autism are teaching us about typical learning and all of that is just a matter of extreme. And so they're helping us understand that all kids need to have different stressors for different reasons. Yes. And that, um, you know, just kids with autism, it may be sensory issues. Other kids may need safety for some other reason and need security and need regulation support and things like that. So um, really that's where the accommodations in any classroom, so any regular ed, kindergarten, first, second grade 
can have those things so that all kids can learn ideally. And if I'm really, um, another word, and, and Laura Fish unpacks this a lot, is attuned. So if I am attuned to my students, then I am aware of what their thoughts, their feelings, their own beliefs, their own struggles, their own fears. If I'm attuned with them, then I create an environment where children learn regardless of label. I think many children stereotypically maybe or as a broad generalization with the label of autism sort of do things that we can see with our eyes or hear with our ears or maybe feel with our body. And so we notice it. And there are many, many children who are struggling with sensory, who are dysregulated, who don't feel safe, but we don't notice them. Yeah. We don't, um, or yeah, we struggle maybe more because it's not as visible if I'm using only the one sense, but um, if yeah, we can no, I hear what you're saying. reframe that my job as an educator or as a district is, or as a family is to create a safe harbor. I mean, you were talking about the other day about the family that had a child that was really struggling to do the work that the district had sent home during the pandemic. Oh, yeah, She just became so agitated and really yeah. helping the family understand that until the child was regulated through mm -hmm. co-regulation, that they couldn't do the activity or the experiential learning. Yeah, you can't force that other stuff unless a child, I mean, you can never force it, but until a child is ready. I want to go back to just real quick something you said that Laura Fish is focused on attunement. And I just want to take that just one step further because something we talk about a lot is it's supporting the people, the guides too. Because in yes. order to attune, you have to be curious yes. about your kids that you are um, engaged with. And in order to be curious, you have to be regulated yourself. <laughs> and so with parents, I'm always talking about how you need to be taking care of yourself. You have to have self-soothing strategies for yourself so that you then can soothe somebody else's system. I know that the Tina Bryson and Dan Siegel talk about that. I know that we talk about that. Laura Fish talks about that. I don't think enough people can talk about that because it is so crucial. Well, then it becomes, how do you really make sure that you are able to keep your own self together, put together, right? That you can handle this or weather this storm. So you often, Barb, talk about being curious. And just yesterday, Laura was saying the word curious as well. And I know that you and I have talked about that that's hard for people. Like a kid has just thrown their Chromebook across the room or they've just uh, run and hidden under the dining room table and you're supposed to be like, hmm, I wonder why you did that. Like that just seems so weird to be curious at that moment when you're really like annoyed, mad, scared, all these other emotions. And so she layered um, curiosity with being open and being receptive to understanding. And I thought that was a nice mm -hmm. way to take what you often invite us to be, to be curious or invite children to be curious about us, yeah. meaning that we're doing whatever it is to lead to understanding. But I think, and scared understanding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that we have to understand that we may need our colleagues to help us stay regulated or soothed, 
We may need to have courageous conversations with our administrators, our school boards, and certainly with our families. We, it's this bi-directional conversation that if I have 25 children who are, I'm a kindergarten teacher and I have 25 children and I am accountable for test scores, for keeping them all safe, for making my way through the curriculum. Perhaps now uh, in some school districts, I told you yesterday that if they do reopen in the fall, there's all this confusion about what materials can be in the classroom as yeah. essential. So now I've got to keep children literally safe from a virus. Yeah. And then you want me to include a kid who doesn't read on grade level isn't interested in any of the things I have planned or doesn't appear to be in my mind, yeah. isn't yet talking in a way that I can communicate with them. These are things that are really asking a great deal of another human. So our question when we say, why don't they believe in inclusion? We have to be equally curious and we have to be attuned to them mm -hmm. to understand mm -hmm. what is keeping them from wanting to create a safe harbor and to include all and that's hard because that, i just want to shake them right <laughs> well that is hard and i think you know i do want to kind of wrap this podcast up with kind of what do we do and i like that as being maybe the message from this podcast is coming to those iep meetings or even prior and being curious because yes. instead of I want inclusion for my child or I don't think inclusion is the best idea for your child, but somewhere in between again of saying, well, why? Why wouldn't we think inclusion? And kind of unpack that. And then what is, you know, just to go deeper in that conversation and maybe not come to it with a preconceived, yeah. hmm. Yeah, it's interesting though because like what you just ended with too is that I, you know, I want to yell. No, we have to consider inclusion first. But it's so. like we have to practice what we preach, Barb. Right? I can't if if the person across the IEP table from me is so dysregulated. How am I going to convince them of what the law says or what the research says or what the social justice reason is? Their lid is flipped. Well, and sometimes I don't think their lid is necessarily flipped. I think they also, so usually it's a, it's a team that is sending off a child into another, onto another team. And I think that they feel like the receiving team is not ready, not, or they don't want to do that to them. Like it's because it'll be more work or something like that. If that well, makes sense. Just like worried about the child's safety or worried about the child's safety for sure. But I think that there's like both happening but to kind of bring all of that to light in the conversation of what are you you know what are people afraid of will happen and how can we make sure that yeah. doesn't happen or and how they say like their lid is flipped i don't mean they've gone all the way into like what you and i talk about in terms of the peak or the valley but yeah. they're definitely in their limbic regions where they're saying mm -hmm. this is not safe so um i'll, I'll share a a podcast, I'm not a podcast, a, a blog series we have on how to be a stress detective as a leader so that you mm -hmm. can see this play out in humans. But when yeah. we, I'm in that limbic region, when I'm in that hypothalamus or amygdala or things, I'm not a neuroscientist, but you get what I mean. Yeah. I'm highly emotional. So I'm having all of those feelings, but my rational upstairs brain, which has 
compassion, empathy, problem-solving, perspective-taking, that may be a little bit offline. I may be more about worried or stressed out or unsure or frustrated. Like I might be having those big emotions. Well, oh my gosh, everybody in IEP meeting is having those. Right. I that's mean, that's what, what everybody I mean. comes with. Right. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe we'll do another podcast. Okay. On like, how do we make yeah. those meetings have, we'll be yes. stress detectives about how to make that's those meetings. There you have it, Barb. That's it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Because you can't, you're, if you're think everybody's thinking of the safety of their, of the child in particular, they're going yes. to be very forthright but in there. adults, if we feel like we're going to be judged, if we don't understand what's going on, if we don't understand what a facial cue or an acronym means, that sends an oh, Olympic, Olympic alarm to go off. And that is the definition of an IEP meeting. It is. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay. That'll be another okay. podcast. All right. <laughs> Christy, I cannot thank you enough for chatting with me about this very, very important topic and for all of the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you. Well, I hope at least through some of our references to our colleagues or some of these little ideas, there's a nugget in here that people can take away that, you know, we remain diligent in our efforts to ensure inclusion is a right, not a rite of passage, but we start to understand why it is uh, a struggle. And then we start to figure out where we can, um, I don't know, enter into the conversation in a way that helps people feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure and ready uh, to accept yeah. inclusion as a right. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Synergy Autism Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Synergy Autism Podcast, where we bring research, information, and people together to best understand and love those with autism, also known as autistic individuals. Check out my website for lots of additional links, like my Facebook account, Instagram account blogs that I have written, videos, and even courses that are both free and some that I have labored with some wonderful colleagues um, to produce just for you. And contact me with questions and ideas for future podcasts. I'm here. I'm listening. Till next time.